Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 15. Claim Jumping at the Golden State The suggestion to watch my back did not fall on deaf ears, but upon reflection, I decided it had fallen on underarm and undermedicated ones. Before venturing out to the point, I went back to my apartment to get my 9mm Glock automatic and swallow half the remaining aspirins in my medicine cabinet. I had a permit to carry a concealed weapon, a CCW in police parlance, but it had not come easy. San Francisco is the toughest city in California, if not America, in which to be granted a CCW permit. There were only five permits issued to non-law enforcement personnel in the city, and I was not one of them. I had worked around the problem by finding a more accommodating sheriff in a rural county, contributing to his re-election campaign, and renting a P.O. box to establish some semblance of legal residence. I washed the aspirins down with a toot of Maker's Mark, filled my hip flask with more of the hair of the dog, and also equipped myself with a can of SpaghettiOs with Franks. There's nothing like American comfort food on a stakeout. I got the Galaxy out of the garage and went down 6th Street to the on-ramp for Highway 280 South. I jumped off at the Cesar Chavez exit, turned on 3rd Street, and cruised through an industrial area of warehouses, machine yards, and abandoned grain elevators. At Evans, I went east and crossed the border into the Hunter's Point neighborhood. Surrounded by water on three sides, Hunter's Point is an inflamed appendix of land that juts out into the bay from the southeastern corner of San Francisco. But more than just the water surrounds it. Thanks to the EPA Superfund site at the old Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard and the belching smokestacks and wastewater of the local PG&E plant, it's surrounded by toxic pollutants as well. Residents are warned not to eat fish caught in the area due to the dangerously high levels of DDT, dioxin, PCB, and mercury, and the rates of asthma, heart disease, and cancer in the community are among the highest in the state. Add to that a long-running gang war between the West Point mob, who controlled the area around Middle Point and West Point Roads where Professor Hubba apparently made his home, and the Big Block gang, who claimed the rest of the district, and you had a particularly unhealthy place to live. I turned on Middle Point Road, just before the squat, medieval-looking buildings and corroded metal smokestacks that comprised the PG&E facilities. The road climbed steeply, affording an excellent view of the bay to the east that was obstructed only by the high-tension power lines running out from the plant. I passed the first of the San Francisco Housing Authority complexes, a plank wood bunker painted industrial green, and almost immediately spotted the professor's car parked along the other side of the road. It was everything the guy at the Galt had said it would be, right down to the pair of stuffed tigers crouching in the back window. I kept going until I came to West Point Road and did an awkward three-point turnaround in front of a group of young black men who scowled at me and the sound of the galaxy's growling power-steering motor, 
I coasted down the hill again to a spot about three car lengths in front of the boss Mustang and pulled to the side. My strategy was to wait for the professor to come back to his car and brace him if circumstances permitted. If not, I would tail him to wherever he was going, assuming, of course, that he ever came out to the car in the first place. I tuned the radio to the one remaining jazz station in the area and opened the SpaghettiOs. I had decided some time ago that they, like English ale, taste better when served at room temperature. I was about a third of the way through the can and feeling about the best I had all day when a diesel bus came groaning up the hill and deposited two men at the stop across the way. They were dressed nearly identically in oversized 49er jerseys, baggy pants, and unlaced Air Jordans the size and shape of moon boots. Neither of them fit the description of Professor Hubba. They started up the hill, but the taller of the two spotted me in the car and elbowed his buddy. He nodded in my direction. They ambled across the street in a negligent walk that came straight out of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. The shorter guy, who was wearing a baseball cap with a bill twisted back to about four o'clock, rapped on the window. I pressed the electric button down, and for once the window rolled all the way down without stopping. I wasn't sure that was a good thing. What are you doing here, Buster Brown? said the taller one. When he spoke, I could see his uppers were capped in gold. Eating lunch. They exchanged looks. Eating lunch, said Gold Teeth. Don't you have no better place to go? I'm on a break. I gestured with my spoon. From the plant. The lie might have made my presence seem more plausible, but it didn't do anything to improve my popularity. The PG&E plant was universally despised in the neighborhood. That plant is racist, said the guy with the cap. That's right, said Gold Teeth. Don't you know better than to come up here eating your skedios, admiring the damn view? This here is Hunter's Point. He leaned into the window. And Hunter's Point has got the most notorious niggers that is in Frisco. San Francisco, I said automatically. Who are you? Herb fucking Kane? No, he's dead. Goldteeth took hold of the door handle and jiggled it open. Maybe you'd like to keep his cracker ass company. I put the can of SpaghettiOs down on the dashboard and pondered my options. If I pulled out the Glock, it was as good as driving through the neighborhood with a bullhorn announcing my presence. But these guys were not going to let me stay without a fight, which would be just as bad, so the only choice seemed to be to pack it in. I reached for the keys and turned the engine over. Guess I'll be leaving then, I said cheerfully. Gold Teeth gave me a gleaming smile. Guess you will be. He shoved the door closed. They stepped back from the car, expecting me to put it in drive and slink away. But what they didn't expect was a San Francisco police cruiser that pulled up behind them. That gave me something to smile about, which I did, and then I pointed at the car behind them. The guy with the baseball cap figured it out first. He tugged at Goldtee's jersey, and the two of them ducked behind the galaxy and melted quickly up the hill. I caught a glance of Goldtee flipping me off in the rearview mirror as they went. The surprising thing was that the cop and the cruiser seemed not to have noticed. He was looking down the hill at another cruiser that was coming around the wide curve in front of the PG&E plant. I rolled up my window, shut the motor off, and went back to my lunch. After a moment, the other cruiser came up the hill and pulled to a stop beside the first, effectively blocking the traffic in either direction. Both cops rolled their windows down and started gabbing across a narrow space that separated them. Cop car 69 was what I called the maneuver. They stayed locked in their embrace for another 15 minutes until another bus came down from the hill. The driver honked at them, and after a few last vital words were exchanged, they rolled in opposite directions. The spaghettios were long gone, so I took a snort from the flask. 
Then I played with the buttons on the radio, pressing them randomly in the middle of ads to see if I could splice together two commercials in humorous ways. The best I managed was a combination of a dating service spot and a pitch for the SPCA. Want to spice up your love life? Adopt a homeless animal. Eventually, I tired of that and let my head fall back against the rest. I strained to keep an eye propped open and focused on the rearview mirror, but the car was pleasantly warm. My stomach was full and the prior night's overindulgence had sapped my energy. I drifted off to sleep. The only thing that saved me was Professor Hubba's aftermarket car alarm. I don't know how long I was out, but the next thing I remember was the sound of a loud chirp. Coming down the hill, the professor had evidently used his remote to disable the alarm. I sat up in my seat with a start and blinked a crust out of my eyes in time to see a well-built guy with a floppy red hat yank open the door to the Mustang. Before he got into the car, he made a stealthy move behind his back to produce a gleaming automatic, which he slipped under the driver's seat. The boss Mustang switched on like a light bulb and idled with a deep rumble that I could feel 20 yards away. The professor gunned the motor once more and then pulled out from the curb to rocket down the hill, the car's distinctive triple-bar taillights glowing bright red almost immediately as he braked at the intersection with Evans. He turned left and barreled out of sight before I had even brought my hand to the ignition. Fortunately, that part of Evans has a number of stop signs at intersections with private industrial roads, so by doing rolling stops through all of them, I was able to catch up with him in time to see him go right on third. After that, I was pretty sure he was retracing my steps to Highway 280, and I could follow from a comfortable distance. With the bright yellow paint and the twin tigers in back, it was hard to miss the car. As expected, we got on 280. He took it north back into town and exited on the flyway that dumped onto 6th Street. As we fought traffic towards Market Street, I decided that it was all a big joke and he was headed back to the Galt. He fooled me, though, when he made a sharp ride onto Jesse Street in front of the Gold Rush Pond and pulled to a stop on the side of the narrow alley. I went a quarter block more and turned into a parallel alley, nosing the car in behind a dumpster where I could look across an open parking lot to where he sat in the Mustang. If he noticed me at all, he gave no indication of it. He had the stereo going full blast with a rap tune, and apart from mouthing the lyrics and gesturing with his fist in time to the music, the only thing that seemed to draw his attention was the street behind him. I thought briefly about confronting him while I had him alone on neutral turf, but the pawn shop seemed too promising a development to jeopardize by not giving it time to play out. I hunkered down to wait. At the far end of the alley, lights and reflectors were set up for a photo shoot in front of a scarred brick warehouse. The model appeared, a wayfish blonde with a heavily made-up face, and her handler immediately set to dabbing more goo around her eyes while the photographer leaned against the building looking impatient as he burned a cigarette. Two guys in orange vests and hard hats walked by carrying bags of donuts. One of them tossed an empty coffee cup at the dumpster. It bounced off the closed lid and skittered to a top on the hood of my car, dribbling brown sludge into the opening for the wiper blades. Neither of them even looked my way. The photographer finally got going with a model, but it was slow work. He would look through the camera at her pose, gesture excitedly for her to change some aspect of it, and when she didn't comply as desired, jump out from behind the camera to move her arm a quarter inch, or push a tendril of hair behind her ear. Half an hour and several glamour shots later, I heard a grinding of gears behind me. I twisted back to see a beat-up cargo van with a restaurant supply logo turning off 6th. It jolted past me and swept into the parking lot behind the pawn shop. The driver tried to back up close to the door, but other cars in the lot made it challenging, and he couldn't steer a clear path between them. 
After several tries, he gave up, leaving the truck stranded in the middle of the lot at a 30-degree angle to the building. I lowered the passenger window a crack to catch anything that might be said. Cab doors on both sides of the truck opened to disgorge a pair of black men. The driver I'd never seen before, but I was pretty certain that the shorter, slighter man was Reggie Lane. Professor Hubba popped open the door to the Mustang, reached for the gun below the seat, and then stood, tucking the automatic in the small of his back. He met the other men behind the truck, pointing and laughing at the driver. The driver smiled and said, What the fuck I know about driving no truck? Reggie stood apart, staring down at the asphalt. Go get Myron, said the professor, and tell him to get his Skrilla on. The driver nodded and ran around to the front of the pawn shop. The professor looked over at Reggie, who would not make eye contact. Quit your moping. You brought it on yourself, Reggie boy. The professor give you two zips of crip to sell. He expects to get paid, even if you decide to flush it down the shitter for some crazy reason of your own. Reggie kicked at the asphalt with his tennis shoe. I told you. Jason said the cops were at the front door. I had to get rid of it, and you didn't give it to me to sell. You said to hold it. The professor laughed. And a fine job you did. Open up the truck. Reggie undid the latch to the cargo door. He pushed the roller door partway open and then stood on the bumper to shove it all the way up. Given the angle the truck was parked, I couldn't see very far into the cargo space, but I could see the scroll and fingerboard of a base strapped to the truck wall. Reggie jumped down and the professor stepped forward to peer inside. You sure this junk will pawn for a thousand? A thousand? That's a big Leomini base. It's worth... Reggie bit off his sentence. The professor crowded in close. How much is it worth, Reggie? Reggie brought his eyes up slowly to meet the professor's. A lot more than that, anyway, he said meekly. The professor laughed again and slapped him on the shoulder. Well, I guess you better hope you can raise the scratch before Myron sells it for the big money. Yeah, guess so. The back door to the pawn shop wheezed open and the driver and a scrawny guy with red hair I assumed to be Myron came outside. Brought you some fine merchandise, Myron, said the professor. Quality goods. We'll see, said Myron. With some difficulty, he hoisted himself into the bed of the van. He glanced at the base and began tugging at the straps that held it to the truck wall. Careful with that, bleated Reggie. Jason, said the professor to the guy who had driven the truck. Go up there and help the man. Jason leapt up to the cargo bed, knelt by the base and began fiddling with something. Reggie watched for a few anxious moments and then scrambled up after them. Not that way, I heard him say. Let me do it. I decided it was now or never. I took my wallet out and extracted all the money I had, over 700 bucks. It was the portion of Ellen Stockwell's retainer that I had taken in cash when I deposited the check, and I needed it now for the play I was going to make. I returned the wallet to my hip pocket, urged the Glock from my shoulder holster, and snicked open the car door. I slid out of the car and ducked behind the dumpster. Holding the Glock to my side, I stepped out from behind it and walked casually but quietly up to the truck. Everyone inside was still engaged in getting the base unstrapped. The professor stood watching a foot or two from the tailgate, and when I was as close to him as he was to the truck and still hadn't been detected, I knew he had his glass eye to my side. I said, Daddy, tell me again about the time you got the drop on Professor Hubba. He didn't quite reach escape velocity. He jumped, twisted in the air, and tried to grope his hand around his back for the automatic. I raised the Glock to his forehead. None of that, I said, and pulled the gun from his waistband. There was no doubt who had the floor now. 
Three pairs of eyes in the professor's lonely orb were locked on me as I dropped the heavy automatic into my coat pocket. Put your hands on the tailgate, professor. Everybody else, lock your hands behind your head and sit down. Reggie and Myron dropped like two stillborn calves. Jason and the professor hesitated, exchanging scheming looks. I put the muzzle of the Glock right up to the professor's temple. Do not try to scoop the moon from the bottom of the sea, I said cozily. The professor became very still. No one likes to deal with a nut, especially a nut with a gun. What the fuck's that supposed to mean? It's from a book I've been reading. I think it's got something to do with accepting the futility of a situation. Like now. The professor breathed in and out. He brought his hands up slowly and then dropped forward to lean on the tailgate. Now tell Jason to put his hands on his head and sit down. The professor cleared his throat and spat on the asphalt. JJ, do what he says, man. Jason lowered himself to the truck floor, looking about as sullen as a cat dunked in dishwater. He locked his hands behind his head. Hope you thought further ahead than this, said the professor, because you ain't going to be able to hold four guys at gunpoint in the middle of San Francisco for long. Somebody see you and call the cops, regardless of your scooping the moon in June shit. I thought about it, I said. Put out your hand. The professor twisted his head to the right, straining to see me out of his good eye. I prodded him with a glock once more, and he took his hand off the tailgate and held it out. Turn up your palm. The professor complied, and I slapped a 700 and some odd bucks from my wallet into it. What the fuck, he said. Usually the man with the gun takes the money. He don't give it. It's the money Reggie owes you. Reggie stirred at the mention of his name. He frowned and made a little strangled noise in his throat. What's going on, he managed to say. I'm sure Reggie appreciates your covering for him and all, said the professor, but this here looks a little light. Reggie is into me for 1200 Nice try. I believe the stated figure was a grand. Of course, that was under the assumption that the stuff you gave Reggie was real, instead of the chunks of drywall or pieces of dried potato that you actually fobbed off on him. It also supposed that you hadn't told Jason to stampede Reggie into flushing the counterfeit crack down the toilet. And then there's a side deal you probably got with Myron to take a cut from the sale of the instruments when Reggie loses the pawn. The professor was silent for a moment. I'm going to stand up. Okay. I stepped back from him. He rose from the tailgate and turned back to look at me. If you think all that, why are you giving me the money at all? Because I want it to end here. Take the cash and let the rest of it go. And that goes for any future harassment of Reggie. Who are you? His long-lost cracker relative? I'm working for his grandparents. The people who own the stuff in the truck. The professor brought a hand up to rub his goatee. He squinted at me through his good eye. And what if I don't go for your little proposal? What are you going to do then? I laughed. You want me to start quoting proverbs again? I'll start by taking the money back. After that, I'll get the cops on you for receiving stolen merchandise. Or better yet, I'll just give you and Jason to them for burglary and assault. I'm sure Victor Lane won't have any trouble picking you both out of a lineup. If you want more, I know some guys in the big block gang who owe me a favor. Maybe I'll redeem it on your ass. Shit. You were going good there until you looped in the brothers from the big block. Don't expect me to believe that. You never know. The professor took hold of the gold dog tags around his neck. He jangled them absently while contemplating the deal. All right. Bird in the hand. 
Jason and I will be on our way after you give me back my piece. I smiled and shook my head. I'll give it to Myron to hold for you. He's used to taking good care of other people's properties. You better give it to him, and he better take damn good care of it. Worth way more than this stack of scratch you gave me. He glanced up into the truck. Come on, J.J., time to get sideways. Jason rose from the truck bed, slapped Reggie on the back of the head as he went around him, and then dropped into the parking lot. I backed up to keep him and the professor in front of the Glock. He sneered at me. Ho cake, he said under his breath. I'm going to assume that's a synonym for cutie pie. I flicked the muzzle of the Glock in the direction of the Mustang. Happy trails, gentlemen. The professor shrugged his shoulders elaborately and sauntered back to the car. Jason followed on his heels, also doing his damnedest not to look hurried or rushed. They siphoned themselves into the front seats, fired up the motor, and squealed down the alley, a thin cloud of burnt rubber lingering over the asphalt after they had gone. I shoved the Glock back into my shoulder holster and gave my attention back to the two left in the truck. You can put your arms down, guys. Reggie let his arms drop and then jumped to his feet. What the hell was that? Mainly it was me recovering your grandfather's property. Property, by the way, that would devastate him to lose. Especially if he knew his own flesh and blood had a hand in it. That was also me saving your ass. But I would rate that more as a side effect. Saving my ass? You don't know the professor if you think that's the end of it. Then maybe it's time to clean up your act and stop playing the patsy for drug dealers. Now, do me a favor and tie down the base again. And what happened to the cover? You shouldn't be transporting it anywhere without that. Reggie looked away from me. We couldn't find it. Great. I just hope for your sake the base isn't scratched. I pulled out the professor's automatic, which on closer inspection turned out to be a collector's edition of the Colt 45 called the El Presidente. Chrome-plated with a gold trigger, pearl handle grips, and the El Presidente moniker carved on the barrel, it was a small arms equivalent of a spangled Elvis suit. Get your butt down here, I called to Myron. Myron crawled dog-like out of the cargo area and came to rest twitching and sniffing by the tailgate. I ejected the magazine of the Colt, pocketed it, and then racked the slide back to eject the round in the chamber. It went sailing out into the parking lot. What are you doing? said Myron, horrified. Did you think I was going to trust you with a loaded gun? Professor Hubba will croak me for certain if I don't return the magazine with a gun. The magazine especially matched on those El Presidentes. I regarded him for a moment. He was 130 pounds of hay fever and halitosis. It was hard to picture him pulling a fast one, but he was more afraid of the professor than he was of me, and that made him untrustworthy. Turn around, I said. Myron dutifully turned and I shoved the colt underneath the waistband of his corduroy trousers. Face me again, I said. Now open wide. I put the magazine between his teeth and pushed his lower jaw closed. Now walk back to your shop, and if I see you reach for the magazine or the pistol, I'm not even going to say a word. I'm just going to treat you like a human shooting gallery target. Once you get there, you stay there and don't come out until closing time. You got me? Myron made a gagging sound that could have been, I got you and nodded his head. I gave him a shove in the direction of the store. He stumbled forward, ran over to where the ejected round lay in the parking lot, scooped that up, and then trotted toward 6th Street. He dodged a street person rolling a shopping cart down the sidewalk, and then disappeared behind the front of the building. You're kind of an asshole, you know that? said Reggie. He had secured the base and was busy pulling down the roller door. Thanks, I get by. He jumped off the tailgate. 
Guess I'll be seeing you then, huh? Not so fast, Reggie. You and I are taking the stuff back to your grandfather. No way. I can't face him now. Now's the only chance you got. If it comes back without you, he'll harden his heart to you now and forever. The only way to set it right is to take it back yourself. Reggie turned away from me and picked at a hangnail on his thumb. It started to bleed. He wiped the blood on his pants and squeezed the thumb cruelly between two fingers. All right, he said softly. I'll go. I didn't trust Reggie to drive by himself, so I left the galaxy where it was and got into the truck with him. We drove to the Lombard Street address, speaking just enough for me to ascertain that the truck was borrowed from a friend who worked at the restaurant supply business whose logo was painted on the side. I had been worried that it was stolen. The sun was dropping behind the hill at Hyde Street when we arrived, and most of the tourists were gone for the day. Reggie got lucky and found a head-in parking space directly across from Victor's condo. He shut off the motor and sat with his hands clenched on the wheel. I said, You're doing the right thing. He'll be so happy to have baby back that everything else will be forgiven. I hope so, man. I pulled out my wallet. Put that away, said Reggie. I don't want none of your money. That's good, because I don't have any. I passed him my card. Victor tells me you play trumpet. Yeah, what of it? I play bass. Give me a call and I'll get you a gig. Reggie blew air from his lips. With who? Little Whitey and the Miracle Whips? I unlatched the door and climbed down from the cab. Try Cornelius Crawford, I said, naming one of the hottest black saxophonists in the city, assuming you're good enough. I slammed the door closed on his surprised expression and wandered down the hill towards Columbus. From there, I caught a ride on a cable car back downtown using an old souvenir ticket I had found on the sidewalk near my office. I figured my having saved the ticket was a sign of good fortune until I found a ticket of another sort under the wiper blade of the galaxy. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>